in terms of human development that the most important period of a person's life in terms of the growth of the brain and neural pathways setting the course for the future are those first five years of life. We are missing a window of enormous opportunity. There's 3,500 community college campuses and only 100 of them have Head Start classrooms operating on them. The whole idea of these support systems is not to support people in perpetuity, but to put them in a position so they can support themselves. You have many parents that start as volunteers in our program, and then from volunteers, they become classroom aides. So they became very um, interested in early childhood development and early childhood education, and they say, well, now that I am a classroom aide, I would like to become a teacher. We are putting new students in the community college. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Kaylee Woods. Access to safe, reliable childcare can be one of the biggest barriers to adults looking to pursue higher education. The annual cost of childcare is surpassing the cost of college tuition in some states, and as a result, student parents are being pushed out of the retention pipeline. So how is ACCT addressing this basic needs issue? Steve Jurch, Associate Vice President for ACCT's Center for Policy and Practice, leads this important discussion and provides us with an overview of the new Kids on Campus initiative. My name is Steve Jurch, and I'm the Associate Vice President of the Center for Policy and Practice at ACCT. Access to affordable childcare for student parents represents a critical basic needs concern and a barrier to post-secondary achievement. This chronic shortage leaves student parents, especially single mothers, struggling to meet this necessity for pursuing post-secondary education. During the pandemic, the federal government provided financial support that helped both parents and childcare providers meet this important need. Now that the funding has ended, we are starting to see the impact on both these groups. While parents and providers have come up with creative solutions that may work in the short term, the concern is that as the challenges continue, the system will come crashing down. One possible sustainable solution involves a partnership between Head Start centers and community colleges. A little later, we're gonna hear about a project that ACCT and the National Head Start Association are undertaking to try and chip away at this barrier. But first I wanna introduce our two guests joining me today who are experts in the childcare field that have some unique insight into this issue. Laura Wheeldryer is the executive director of the Maryland Family Network. She has spent her career primarily in education in both the private and public sectors. She has worked nationally on education reform projects with school systems, state education departments, and nonprofits. Prior to leading the Maryland Family Network, Laura was the chief program officer for the Everyone Graduates Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Education. And joining Laura today is Hilda Pena Alfaro, and she has been working in education for over 25 years as a professor, administrator, and entrepreneur. She has owned and run a language school in San Antonio, Texas for 16 years, and has partnered with school districts to implement programs for students and teachers, successfully boosting students' literacy and language. She is currently the Mount Hood Community College Child Development and Family Support Executive Director Thank you both for being here. 
Thanks for having us. So, all right. So to start off, I think it's going to be helpful to get a broader picture of some of the challenges and just that general state of childcare. So I want to turn to Laura first. Um, so as I mentioned in, your, in the introduction, you're the executive director of the Maryland Family Network. Can you help or, or can you help our audience understand about what your organization does uh, and sure. what your role is? Yeah, uh, so Maryland Family Network is a statewide nonprofit organization. And basically, I'm going to just say we have two big buckets of work. Um, one of those buckets is that we oversee three statewide networks of direct service. So that's just a fancy way of saying like we run a statewide network of early Head Start centers. We are the largest early Head Start grantee in Maryland. We also run the statewide network of child care resource centers and family support centers. That work is all publicly funded by either the federal or the state government. So what's in the other bucket that goes along with all of that is we do a lot of public policy and advocacy work in Annapolis um, and, and also to advance the field. So it's not just legislatively aimed work, but uh, I love this is what attracted me to Maryland Family Network is. I think what gives us our street credibility is that we can say legitimately that we are talking to young children, their parents, their caregivers, their teachers, every single day all over the state. So there's kind of this built-in feedback loop, if you will, in terms of what informs our public policy work. I think we have um, a rare opportunity and privilege of being um close to the front lines every day and knowing like, what are the pain points for raising young children right now in the state of Maryland? Thanks. And, and I know that's, you know, that is such a great approach to policy um, is, is using that on the ground information. I, I think Agreed. one thing it's similar to uh, what we try to do at ACCT with the center for policy and practice is, is we, you know, look at projects like the one we're going to talk about a little bit later and say, okay, how, what are we going to find coming out of this project and how can it make better policy? Right. Yeah. So I think you have to bring that real life experience and you can't just, you know, people in a room sitting around theorizing about like, Oh, this would be a great idea. Let's, let's implement this without any sort of practical understanding. Um, so that's totally great agree, Steve. Yeah. So, you know, childcare and the challenges that surround particularly affordability uh, it's, that's nothing new that's been around for a little while, but, you know, recently with the pandemic, um, you know, there was some funding during the pandemic. It's gone now. Um, but I think, you know, since this isn't a new um, a new phenomenon, can you talk a little bit about the overall picture of sort of that state of childcare in Maryland? And then if you have any perspectives on what that looks like or what trends we're seeing across the country? Yeah. I think for those of us who work in the early childhood field, the fragility of child care is nothing new, but we did get a lot of public attention and media coverage during the pandemic when, for a lot of people, child care shut down. Sometimes that child care never reopened. Work was totally disrupted. And all of a sudden, one of the things that advocates have been saying forever about child care is the workforce behind the workforce got, you know, put square in the spotlight of national attention um, for lots of good reason. 
you know, why is childcare so important? I mean, if you care about kids and education and the, you know, next generation and the future of this country, just, you know, to name a few things, um, then you should know in terms of human development that the most important period of a person's life in terms of the growth of the brain and neural pathways, setting the course for the future are those first five years of life. And traditionally, kids don't even show up in school until they're five. That's changing a little bit with pre-K expansion. But still, education is not compulsory until age five. We are missing a window of enormous opportunity to influence the path that children will be on for the rest of their lives. And there's incredible research about longitudinal health outcomes, education, earnings, um, et cetera, as well as emerging science um, every day about brain development and the role that, that all, how all these things come together. So the challenge with childcare has been that it's been a very undervalued field. Most people will still call it daycare or babysitting. It has not been seen as a profession, right? Um, and, uh, and I don't think it's any coincidence that it is almost wholly run by women um, and increasingly, it is Black and brown women and women who don't speak English as a first language. And so there are, you know, layers upon layers of issues here that could be unpacked. But these are largely small businesses, women-run, women-owned small businesses. Um, so people are trying to be both CEOs of their small business and early childhood educators. Okay, so the difference between childcare and public education is there's no system of childcare in this country. This is a market-driven system of small businesses, as I said, which means um, it's both very challenging to get data about what's going on, because again, there's no sort of infrastructure or centralized oversight. And it's also very hard to support the field because there's no way of doing that. Um, the largest investment in this, that we make in this country in childcare is something called childcare subsidy, which is federal money that comes to states. And it's basically a public benefits program for families who are working or going to school, which is important um, to this project. So working, going to school in a job training program and income eligible. Um, and a great thing that happened during COVID is a lot of states expanded these programs. So Steve, you mentioned Governor Moore putting money in to his budget, which is historic and amazing. And, you know, we applaud his efforts and his recognition that I started out by saying, if you care about little kids in the next generation, but how about if you care about the state's economy? I mean, there is a direct link between people having access and to affordable and high quality childcare and being able to show up at work every day. So there, again, there are many benefits to the state. Maryland has one, um, one of, if not the lowest unemployment rates in the country right now. And I would like to tell you, if I was the Secretary of Labor, that I think that is in direct relationship to all of the changes we've made in childcare subsidy, or in Maryland, we call it childcare scholarship, not to confuse anybody, um, and that we've expanded eligibility for that, we've expanded the reimbursement rate to providers who serve children who accept this benefit. Um, and we've tried to make it easier to access and cut a lot of the red tape and bureaucracy that goes with government programs, right? So we've tried to make it easier and quicker to get for families. So 
all of these things are tangled up and um, you know, it leads you to the public policy question of like, where's the political will to do more than that? And so obviously I think there is much, much more to do. Let me just say one last thing about this, the state of childcare. Um, obviously this is a subject that I don't feel passionately about at all. And you know, you've really had to pull this information out of me. I'm worried that I might use up the whole time if you don't like cut me off. So um, there was a huge concern and, and it remains that we might lose childcare slots both in Maryland and across the country because of the pandemic. You know, many states closed childcare for health and safety fears. Um, not all states, but a lot of states, and certainly Maryland for a period of time did. And then, um, you know, the concern was, would they ever reopen? Would those slots come back? And I think state by state, you're seeing different things. In Maryland, the number of slots for childcare have actually regained, like we've regained back to those 2019 levels. So that's good news that, you know, there hasn't been a net loss of seats, but look underneath the hood of that data a little bit. And what you would see is like, who's providing those slots? So in broad brush terms here, you have family child care providers, people who provide child care in their home, and then you have center-based child care. And um, what we have seen is a loss of family child care providers and an expansion of center-based slots. So again, the net is the same, but who's providing it is different. And you might say like, well, who cares? Is one better than the other? Both are important and good, but rural areas are mostly served by family childcare. So the fact that we have a loss of family providers, it's a big deal to Western Maryland and the Eastern shore and any place, again, this is not just Maryland, but any place that is um, geographically isolated, you can't get the critical mass of families to make the business model of a childcare center work. So family providers who in Maryland are licensed to serve up to eight children um, are really the way that those rural areas get childcare. And the last thing I'm gonna say is people are gonna work, right? Like if there is not licensed childcare, then we are essentially incentivizing people to use unlicensed, unregulated care, which can potentially be dangerous. You do not know that those folks have been trained, they've been background checked, and I'm not casting aspersions. I'm sure many of them are wonderful, but for parents to work and feel safe and confident about where their children are being taught, nurtured, cared for, these are some of the things that children deserve from us, these systems of safety and health oversight at a minimum. So it remains a very fragile field and in need of some really innovative thinking. And I think it's important that that you know you 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 mentioned it early, but then you ended on this note around it's more it's more than just allowing um, parents to go to work. There there are direct benefits, developmental benefits, educational yes. benefits to the children as well. And I think what you pointed out um, around uh, the requirements to apply for childcare scholarships in Maryland and how that's uh, I won't say it, it's basically an easier process than it used to be. And there's yes. less red tape. That is the type of policy change that we hope this project 
influences, things like that, because uh, my wife is actually in early childhood space in Maryland. That was that was one of the largest complaints she had was like, um, you know, it takes so long for someone to get approved for one of these scholarships. By the time they want to do anything, slots are gone. I worked at a community college in Maryland and we had, um, you know, parents that wanted to sign up for coursework, but they didn't get their child care approved yeah. yet. So they couldn't start the class. And so it just derails a lot of different things. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, what policies can we influence? That is a prime example of what this kind of project um, or what this sort of practical application to policy can make. So I think, you know, to follow up on that, I, I think that, um, you know, you mentioned that there was a lot of funding and you mentioned that it, we, we talked about it drying up. So I think if you could look like if you had the ability to predict what was going to happen now that the funding is gone or well, it did end in July. So, you know, we're starting to see the impact of that. What are some of the 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 biggest challenges you see now and in the future if nothing changes, like if the government doesn't come back and step in? or states don't take their own initiatives? Like, are we just looking at like a house of cards or, or like what's what's going on? I mean, potentially, and obviously I hope the answer to that is no. Um, and, and I think we need for the answer to that to be no. But um, the funding that you're talking about was um, American Rescue Plan Act dollars and every state got some money dedicated to childcare and the biggest chunk of that money had to go directly to providers as stabilization grants. Every state handled this a different way. Um, so, but a number of states, not Maryland, a number of states actually made monthly payments to childcare. And the, and the thinking was, um, we're gonna help you offset some of your fixed costs, right? So like if your enrollment is down because of COVID or because people are working from home or because you can't find staff to staff classrooms so you can't you know, fill up your enrollment, your fixed costs don't change. You're still paying rent or mortgage. You still mm -hmm. have employees to pay. You still have insurance to pay. You Okay, you get the point. So when that money that phase of American Rescue Plan Act money ended this fall, um, there was the prediction from the Century Foundation that we might see tens of thousands of closures across the country. I think it's, I, I don't know how it has played out. And Maryland did not handle um, stabilization grants that way. So I was less worried about Maryland. But I think it's just too soon because really we're just a few months past the end of that money, I think this time next year, we could take a look at the national landscape and see how the numbers may have shifted. And and again, not just the numbers, as I made the point about Maryland, but like, where is the care located and what kinds of providers are we talking about? Um, I think it'll be a very um, telling landscape. So you asked, what do I see in the future, given that this money has dried up? I mean, one optimistic thing would be to say, hey, that money did great things during COVID. And that's part of what inspired a governor more to invest more money because he saw like, hey, this is a public policy solution that is producing quick, um, like short and long-term benefits to the state. I would like to believe, you know, that that's part of what influenced his budget decisions, not just a philosophical belief, but a real, like in the last year in Maryland, this is actual data, we saw a 37% increase in enrollment in childcare scholarship from families 
and an 11% increase in participation from providers who it, it's voluntary to serve childcare scholarship families. So 11% more providers, meaning that those families have greater choice and more access. So these are like, are you kidding me? This is like public policy advocacy dreams, right? So my hope is that we learn some things and that the minute those dollars dry up, states are going to be compelled to act because of those lessons learned. That may sound very Pollyanna, I realize. So let me say something a little bit less optimistic. Um, and that is, I think one of the dangers is that many, not dangers because I'm against this, just to be clear, but many states are expanding pre-K right now. And many states, including Maryland, are expanding pre-K through something called diverse delivery, which means that three and four-year-olds will attend pre-K maybe in a school, but maybe in community-based childcare settings. And so I do worry that if we have lost like family providers in Maryland, and then we maybe are incentive, like perhaps in an, in an imbalanced way, incentivizing the market to serve three and four-year-olds more than infants and toddlers, that we're going to end up with some unintended consequences and really decrease the number of slots for infants and toddlers, which by the way, there already are not enough of. Um, and that care is so expensive because it's so hard to come by. So it's a precious commodity um, that truly in three quarters of the states in this country, infant and toddler care is more expensive than the public university system tuition. So I laugh all the time about, I have three kids and people say like, oh, when did you start saving for college for your kids? We should be asking people when they started saving for childcare. So I think there are many um, things we need to be wary of. Obviously, ideally, there would be some federal action. The Biden administration had proposed Build Back Better. It did not go anywhere. To be honest with you, and I'm just being very pragmatic, I don't see it going anywhere in the next year. Um, but depending on what happens in the next election with Congress and the White House, maybe there's a chance to revive some of that. Because I actually think the problem is too big for states to solve on their own. I also don't think it should matter if you live in Pennsylvania or Virginia or Maryland, all families need access to high quality childcare, period, the end. Um, there are a lot of moving pieces and a lot of unknowns, but I think it's absolutely incumbent on both elected officials, policymakers, um, and advocates to really keep an eye on all these pieces like pre-K expansion, which on its own is a good thing and something we support, but could produce, and we know has in other places, produce some negative outcomes for childcare. No, that's so important. And, you know, I think um, before we, we turn to Hilda, I want to ask you one more question that sort of comes from what you were just talking about when, you know, it's so hard to find childcare or it can be. So like what, what factors make it so difficult to provide quality, affordable childcare in the current system? I mean, is it, I know there's, you know, the obvious one is rates and affordability, but are there Correct. other types yeah. of, of, you know, of crisis points that, that create it, that create that difficulty? No question. Rates and affordability are a huge piece. We, again, because there is no system of childcare, the market drives 
what mm-hmm. providers can set as tuition. So really what should what should drive the cost of childcare is is the actual cost of childcare, not what the market can bear. But because individual parents have to pay, um, you it it's a I'm gonna quote Janet Yellen here, it's a broken business model. And that's just the truth, right? Um, one of the challenges I mentioned before of pre-K dis like creating some imbalanced incentives, three and four-year-olds subsidize infants and toddlers who are much more expensive to care for because right. they demand sm- smaller ratios of children to adults. So your staffing costs are higher. The only way to not cripple families with those actual costs is to charge a little bit more for three and four-year-olds to offset those costs of infants and toddlers. But no, there's, I mean, this is why childcare providers themselves generally qualify for public benefits programs. So childcare providers are using childcare subsidy for their own children because they cannot earn a living wage. So yes to rates and affordability. The second thing I wanna mention, and again, Steve, softball coming your way, it's facilities. It's 100% facilities. So think about, again, comparing it to the public school system. There are no facilities that are given to childcare or almost never, I'll say. Um, Occasionally, there are states or cities that do like um, tax incentives, um, maybe um, other kinds of tax breaks to try and attract um, or incentivize businesses or developers to include space for childcare, but there's not a system. A couple of years ago in Maryland, we passed legislation that provided a low interest revolving loan fund for childcare. But, and that's great. And it has gotten more uptake than anybody expected. Um, and that's fantastic. It's still a loan. And we're talking about right. businesses that operate with a razor thin margin. So it still has to be repaid. Um, and the reason facilities are so challenging is because of the requirements for health and safety code. So for example, you have to have a sprinkler system. You have to have multiple routes of egress. You have to have tiny little toilets and sinks. Like these things cost money. They're not cheap and not every facility has them, but we need them to have them because little kids, again, deserve to be kept safe and healthy um, when they are in our care. So um, I think that that is a huge obstacle. And as I mentioned before, we run a lot of early Head Start centers and early Head Start and Head Start are forms of child care. Um, So I have had the responsibility of looking for facilities for early Head Start centers and probably in the Baltimore region, you look at 40, 30 to 40 facilities to find one. And then, and that's just to find one that can meet code. And then the question is, can you afford it? Can you afford to invest in the property and upgrade things that it will need to make code? So it, it is, um, I know we love to let things be run by the market in this country, but it is a big challenge of trying to systematize access and affordability when really people are going to go and play where the market is strongest. That that does not make for an equitable approach. Right, right. And I think, you know, well, first of all, boy, do I have a project to tell you about uh, when you're looking for early Head Start space. But I, I think... Um, 
you know, that really paints a nice picture of like, this isn't just a, hey, I need a place to, you know, to leave my child while I go right. to work. Like there's, it's so much more of an ecosystem. And I, and I think people don't necessarily understand the economic impact. It's not just about not being able to find daycare. So what happens if someone can't find childcare? Uh, they don't go to work. They have to stay home if they can afford it. And that takes a worker out of the workforce. So Correct. if you think about the, just that implication and how many people had to leave the workforce during COVID because of childcare, nothing else, childcare. They, you know, the center's closed for obvious reasons and for appropriate reasons, but at the same time, it's sort of like all these parents had to then leave the workforce in order to take care of, of their children. So, I mean, I think it is, it is a crisis and it is a house of cards. And I think something has to be done um, and it can't just be um, like you mentioned, the market driven. There has to be some, you know, some some larger supports provided to create that ecosystem. But what I want to move to now is, and this gets into a little bit more about where, what we're hoping to accomplish with this project. And one of the reasons this partnership makes such sense is because of the predictable funding stream, the other benefits that come with the Head Start program. Uh, it just, it, it, we're hoping that it's gonna create some sort of stability on a campus and allow that campus to then braid in other funding to expand the ability to serve more student parents and then also community parents as well. So I wanna, I wanna to turn to Hilda and have her share with you a little bit about their institution and how they do it. So Hilda, you, not only do you have a Head Start Centers on campus, but you are also the grantee. And that's the difference. Our project is not focused on making new grantees. We are focused on taking existing grantees and matching them in a space that can help them be sustainable and grow and provide these services. So can you talk a little bit about the history of how Mount Hood started this and how it came about. And I think you have a, a, a phenomenal anniversary coming up at the institution. Yeah, so yes, thank you, Steve, of course. Mohawk Community College is a public community college located in Gresham, Oregon, in the northwestern corner of the state. It serves approximately 18,000 students annually and offers more than 120 professional and technical programs that lead to associate's degrees and certifications. Mohawk Community College Child Development and Family Support Services Program oversee and implement Mohawk Community College Head Start and Early Head Start Grant, which serves students of the college as well as the broader community. Through state and federal sources, the college is founded to serve 1,200 students, children across its Head Start and the Early Head Start programs. And it is amazing, uh, the first grant, it was awarded for the first time in 1974. So this year we are going to celebrate in September our 50 year anniversary. When the grant started, it was the initiative by a professor the, whose last name was De Mateos. And he was a visionary in the sense that he saw that Head Start was an opportunity to provide service to children, but also to have teaching classrooms. When this um, initiative started, the program had 80 children and four classrooms. 
And then at the beginning, three classrooms were in a church and one classroom was in the school district. Later, they constructed some portables at the college and the program like keep growing and growing and growing with the same pattern. So classroom in churches and the school districts until 2011, when the early childhood center was built in uh, the campus premises. And this is a 20,000 square foot building that creates a unique pathway for cradle to career success in the community. So by having childcare and other services available on campus, the program increases the chances for parents completing college and landing good jobs to support their families. The center that we have at the college is divided in four communities of two classrooms each, including three rooms for infant and toddlers, an internal street that um, connect those communities forming plazas, squares, and creative spaces, uh, and also uh, spaces for quiet time. We have also a playground that include a water feature, a rope climbing structure, musical instruments. And in, in fact, the center is designed to promote strong connections to the natural world. So that's the way the grant started and it became to this fruition and to this state in which today uh, we have 21 uh, different facilities among the East Multnomah country in which we provide services. So that's, well, first of all, that's amazing. And so how do I get to 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 take advantage of those, <laughs> those play, you know, those nature spaces and the climbing walls and everything else? Um, that sounds awesome. So obviously Head Start uh, funding and infrastructure is a huge part of, um, you know, the college's ability to provide uh, childcare. Do you, does the college braid other funding streams? Like do you, know, like I know there's a federal grant called C Campus that some colleges apply for. There's the state scholarships or, or, or uh, state voucher programs that are in various states. Do you, do you braid in other sources of funding so you can not only serve the student parents or the children that qualify for Head Start, but then also other ones um, to sort of broaden that reach to your students? Well, let me tell you a little bit more about um, the service that we offer, and then I, I connect to the funding streams that we have. So as I told you, we right now have 21 centers providing Head Start and Early Head Start classrooms to the East Multnomah County. We have also two home-based locations that provide early Head Start, three teen parent programs in partnership with different school districts, and eight community childcare partners. So mm -hmm. our programs have three different sources of funding. The first one is the National Head Start Association. The second one is a big grant from DELC, that is the Develop mm -hmm. Department of Early Childhood in Oregon. And the third one is Portland Children's Levy, that is a fund uh, to fund early childhood uh, home-based slots. Unfortunately, we are we do not have at the college anything to serve uh, people that do not qualify for Head Start. We are starting a collaboration with another funding stream um, that is from the county that is called Preschool for All. 
And but in order to really have that partnership and be able to provide more slots, we really need to increase the um, pay rate of our teachers for this partnership to pro to really came into fruition and be successful for everybody. So that's that's the way things are right now. Definitely, you can tell that there was a lot of creativity and a lot of innovation and, you know, and that's what we hope to see is we hope to see like a seed planted and then it just grows from there. And then all these different ways to utilize different funding streams um, and different partnerships in the community um, is just going to make that that so much better on campus. So I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Laura. Did you guys see any impact on services or, you know, I know Head Start was still being funded, but some of the um, the uh, rescue money, did you see any change in services due to that federal funding ability being removed or dried up? Well, you know, the, the, that money that came to to us, was amazing because for the first time we will be able to provide things that were needed for the children, like implement, like have tricycles, have uh, weight uh, water boots because in here in Oregon it's very rainy, so we need to have like uh, water boots for the children that we were able to provide, and also rain coats and different uh, like suits, rain suits for all the children. And we also were able to provide more help for our um, families. And I would like to uh, tell you a little bit about what is Head Start and Early Head Start. So we are not only provided education for the children, we are also providing comprehensive services for the whole family. So the idea is that a child cannot succeed by themselves, the family overall needs to succeed. So the child is registered or enrolled in our program. Then a family advocate goes and have a, an interview with the family to assess what are their needs and to uh, put in writing with the family, what are the goals of the family and how can the program can help achieve those goals for the family. And, you know, we provide like dental service, we provide mm -hmm. uh, uh, dental screenings, we provide uh, visual screenings, we see and encourage parents to have medical services. But not only that, we also organize resource fairs based on the needs of the community to provide what the community is needing. On just in December, we organized like a winter resource fair in which we gave coats for every children, zero to five. We provide tablets as well, car seats, and things that the community were, was needing. When this source of funding is not, are not, it's not gonna be available anymore. So we are gonna have, again, our hands tied in order to provide all those services that the community really needs and are, necessary for the family to succeed and really break the circle of poverty. And one thing that, you know, I've seen both when I was at the community college and, and at ACCT is, you know, we're hearing more and more about that student basic needs support. And it's not necessarily that students have 
challenges with the educational component at a community college. It's more about managing that student support. So the whole student. And so it really demonstrates how important those comprehensive programs are that support the family in multiple ways and not just going to provide childcare and that's it. There's this whole program that's created. We see the same thing when a lot of um, students will just get a scholarship for tuition. So they'll, but there's no other support. They still have to ma navigate childcare and transportation and food insecurity sometimes. So providing them free tuition is great. But at the same time, if you don't fix these other things or help them with the other things, the free tuition is 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 not going to help really in yeah. that in that particular situation. So that's another reason we feel like you know in you know these partnerships with Head Starts on campuses are going to really sort of provide that full picture of support for those students. Have you seen, or if you can talk to a little bit about um, how having this child development center on campus impacts the success of your students? Of course. Well, I can tell you that the impact is huge, not only because of these comprehensive services that I was talking about before, but also we have extensive research that prove uh, the positive outcomes for children and families. So we have for the little ones, less grade repetition by eighth grade. We have improved high school graduation rates. We have lower foster case placement rates. We have an increase in higher education enrollment and completion rates. We have decrease on reliance of public assistance. And so what happens is that overall, the families engage in these goals that are for the school readiness for the child, but also the goals for the family. And the fact that we are able with a comprehensive service to go there and really help the students when they are struggling, when there is a need, then this, um, uh, this, uh, this way in which the students sometimes feel overwhelmed, feels that they cannot um, succeed because there are environmental factors that are, they are not allowed them to do that. It's huge. And let me give you ex an example. Just last week, we have a winter storm hit here at, in Oregon, and then many um, pipe, pipes burst. And so we were able to provide guidance uh, where to contact a, a, a plumber, uh, provide resources for the students and uh, our all the families in order to address this emergency. And with that, they are able to come back to the classroom and complete their studies. So it's really these comprehensive services that makes the students succeed in college and in life. I think one of the things you 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 mentioned, and people may have missed it, but you talked about having support of the Head Start centers and allowing the the parents to complete their education creates less of a reliance on public benefits. So getting back to the economic impact, if you think about a parent who is unable to put themselves in a better economic position because they you know, lack post-secondary education or, or a credential from a workforce program, they're not gonna be able to better their situation and they're gonna continue to rely on public benefits. That's the whole idea of these support systems is not for 
to support people in perpetuity, but to put them in a position so they can support themselves and their family. And so it's all about prioritizing where we invest the funds. Yeah. Uh, people are, you know, they don't want to invest in these types of programs, but then two seconds later, they're talking about how many people are receiving public benefits. I'm like, well, you you can't have it both ways. If you invest in a way to get them off public benefits, that is where the smart investment is in my, in my opinion. Um, so that's great to hear. You mentioned also uh, you provided like dental screening, dental cleanings, health screens. Are those done by the students? Like um, we've seen partnership examples where like the nursing program will come in and do health screens or the dental hygiene program will come in and clean the teeth and it gives the students practical experience, but also benefits the children and parents. Is that the case at, at Mount Hood? Well, it used to be the case because of COVID, all these part, mm -hmm. some of the partnership was broken and we are working on providing those services through the students again. So it's a work in progress, but that's the goal. That's something that used to be the reality in the past. And we are working to uh, have this new, this, uh, reality in the future and take advantage of a lot of synergies that can happen between the Head Start program and the community college. And I think that's great. We heard examples when we were doing our uh, planning grant for this project around, like I mentioned, dental, well, obviously early childhood education programs, a lot of, um, you know, partnerships are used as learning or learning labs or internship sites or student teaching sites. You know, there's the dental programs. We heard of nursing students being able to come in uh, and do health screens with the kids, which gives them experiences they might not have access to working in pediatrics. The other interesting one, just to show you the infinite possibilities of partnerships between Head Start and community colleges is there was a Head Start that purchased a fleet of vans for transporting the children and their day-to-day -day operations. The automotive program on the campus actually maintained the vehicles for free. So it was this learning experience for the students. The Head Start got the benefit of uh, basically free uh, transportation repairs. And you know you were, there was an ability to uh, count those services towards the federal match requirement for the Head Start. So it's there's just really, a lot of opportunities for this. Sorry to interrupt you, Steve. Let me tell you a little bit about one um, synergy that we have at the Monkhood Community College. Uh, and that I think that this synergy really contributes to break the cycle of poverty. So uh, you will have many parents that start as volunteers in our program. And then from volunteers, they become classroom aides. Mm. Through the college, because now they are employees of Head Start, this parent can be enrolled in ESL classes or GED classes or citizenship classes. And the result of that, so they became very um, interested in early childhood development and early childhood education. And they say, well, now that I am a classroom A, I would like to become a teacher. So the college has also a program that is the VESSEL program and this program is English as a second language, but providing all the vocabulary that is used in the early childhood terminology. So from there, 
this parent that started as a volunteer comes uh, has their CDA, the Certificate for Early Childhood, that is also completed through the college. And then from there, they jump to have an associate degree. Everything that I mentioned is tuition free because they are employees. And in that way, they we really are contributing not only to break the circle of poverty, but also we are putting new students in the community college. So it's a, a, a very nice synergy in which everybody benefits from Head Start in the campus. Yes, we had heard that. That's interesting because Head Start actually has funds if they're if a parent is an employee or for any of their employees that they can then pay for that employee to get their CDA, you know, and that's the other piece of this project that we hope is sort of a um, a ripple effect because of the partnership is the you know we know there's also a workforce crisis uh, in early childhood and so hopefully creating some sort of pipeline for. Um, you know, for the Head Start organizations. And we know that a lot of Head Start teachers end up moving into other uh, early childhood positions at other organizations. So, you know, we hope to, to you know, contribute a small bit to that workforce crisis. I want to close by talking a little bit about the project itself and how uh, interested organizations can get involved. So, you know, Hilda, you talked about utilizing Head Start as a resource for the students and the members of the community. And so, you know, when, when we first were looking at this project, this is not a new idea between community colleges and Head Start. When we were launching the project, we were uh, contacted by the Office of Head Start in Health and Human Services, and they mentioned that these discussions have been going on since the 60s. So we were like, uh, why haven't we done anything? So you know, they were applauding this effort as sort of the first real um, targeted project to to really, you know, create these partnerships. And particularly with when you look at the synergies between the populations Head Start serves and, and who community colleges serve, to us, it was, very, it was a no-brainer and very obvious, but, you know, there are fewer than 100 community college campuses across the United States. There's 3,500 community college campuses and only a hundred of them have Head Start classrooms operating on them. So, you know, we hope to increase that number. This is going to be a five-year project. Um, and our goal is not only to increase the number of Head Start centers on campus, where our goal is to provide between 50 and 75 new partnerships. Um, and essentially, as I mentioned at the very beginning, which is a little different uh, from Mount Hood, is that we want it there to be a um, sort of a at its root root design a landlord tenant. So we want the community college to provide free or heavily reduced space, but then the Head Start will come in and operate that space. So they will provide you know that steady stream of funding. They provide the the teachers. Um, they also I know there's funding. I know there's um, a process to it, but I know there's funding available for renovating a space. So a lot of times community colleges will talk about cost prohibitive miss uh, of, you know, operating a child care center on campus. So, you know, we hope that this is going to provide some stability for that. And also, as I mentioned at the very beginning, that anchor institution on a campus, and then they can expand to be able to serve that larger population. We mentioned several times throughout this, this conversation around the other benefits of partnership, 
internship and practical experience, healthcare programs, other types of partnerships on campus and in the community. It doesn't have to be within the community college. I know that there's examples around where the Head Start's located on a college, but there's another community-based organization that may provide so another piece of that puzzle. So it is a, um, you know, sometimes a, you know, fitting all the right puzzle pieces together. But I think this is a, you know, a nice sort of focused, intentional solution to that to that issue. Um, you know, one other thing we heard was this was there were so many institutions and so many Head Start centers that were interested in this. And from the focus groups we held, there was no challenge that was that would prevent someone from wanting to do this partnership. You know, of course, there's all kinds of logistical problems and, and understanding each other's organizations, but none of them were like, eh, we don't want to do this anymore. So that was encouraging to us. What we heard over and over again was we want to do this, we want to do this, but we don't know how to get started. And we don't necessarily have the capacity just to take this on ourselves. So having this project provide technical assistance and coaching and that matchmaking and, you know, um, best practice modeling, that is what they needed. That support is what they needed to then create these partnerships. So there is a way to get involved if organizations are interested in either just following our progress or uh, looking to participate in this project. Uh, if you go to our website, ACCT.org uh, and click on the Center for Policy and Practice and look for Kids on Campus. There is a uh, button that allows you to sign up to engage with the project. And, you know, if you're interested, there's a way to say, yes, I want to participate in this or I'm just interested in following along. So post February 6th, we're going to start doing our outreach to those interested institutions and hopefully, you know, get this ball rolling sooner than later. I just want to thank our guests for their fantastic information. This was really a very comprehensive picture of the challenges with childcare, one possible solution, and then how we're gonna, you know, launch this project to hopefully keep that momentum going. And we look forward to providing updates along the way.